hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy. This is the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, how people define happiness and success, all the big questions for work and life. My name is Graham Olcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I am talking to Iman Ismail. She is the founder of Ink House. She's a young working mum. She's an entrepreneur. We talk about her journey starting her business from scratch. And of course, why writing matters. Why is writing an important skill for business? How to get better at it? And uh, really the benefits of thinking in a copywriting kind of way. So loads in this one. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Um, she's she's great company, great to talk to. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy the episode. Um, at the end of this episode, I will give you more details about my new program, Six Weeks to Ninja, and lots of other stuff. So um, stick around after the conversation. But let's jump straight in. Here's my conversation with Iman Ismail. Right, we are rolling on a very wet Thursday morning um, here in Brighton. Um, and I'm with Iman Ismail. Am I saying that right? Iman Ismail? You, you are. Well, Iman Ismail. Iman Ismail. Exactly. Because also you do email. So the fact that your surname is Ismail is you know, pretty I, cool. I only realized <laughs> that literally about two weeks ago. And I was thinking, is that really confusing <laughs> for people? It's taken me this long to realize it. But I'm glad you like it because I thought it might just confuse people. I mean, that could be your brand name right there. Iman Ismail. Right. Right. I should probably just rebrand now. <laughs> um, but you are the founder of Ink House, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but yeah, let's just start with uh, where where are you in the world right now? What does your world look like? What can you see from where you're talking to me? Oh, OK. So I am in northern England. I'm in Manchester. I'm sat in my co-working space, which is um, the most stunning space I've ever um, had the kind of blessing to work in. It's very green. Um, it was actually created and designed by a photographer. So he's a creative himself. So everything in here is just designed to inspire other creatives. It's absolutely stunning. So there are loads of plants. Um, it's very green. I'm actually sat in the greenhouse. <laughs> There's a greenhouse in the building. And um, it's, it's a really great place to be when you're on phone calls and recording podcasts because the acoustics are fantastic and I actually have a little a little um is it an orange tree next to me it's tiny it's growing um but I think someone's put it on the table so that um it takes up you know room and nobody else comes and sits next to me because of you know covid <laughs> um so it's, it's actually on the table next to me but so I'm smelling oranges as well, which is quite nice. So, you know, orange trees and uh, surrounded by greenery, not generally what you'd think of when you think of Manchester, eh? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Which I think is what made me fall in love with this place. Because I was working in a co-working space before I came here. Uh, but it, it was it was really inexpensive, which was fantastic because I'd just started my business. Um, but it was, I mean, you get what you pay for, right? So it was really yeah. grey and bland and um, it was actually in the city centre as well. So I was paying so much in parking fees. And then it just got to a point where I actually calculated how much I was spending on parking each month and thought I might as well just pay for an icicle working space that has free parking and managed to find one. It's so funny, isn't it? Like with money where there's there's certain costs that you think about and then there's certain costs that are almost just like hidden. Yes. You know, like commuting, people get a a pay rise but the job involves a longer commute and then they never think about how half of 
their pay rise is just taken up in the train season ticket. Oh my gosh. I used to, um, before I started Ink House, I used to work um, in Bradford. So I used to commute to Bradford four days a week. And the amount of money I spent on petrol, um, because I, I had to drive because the trains didn't get me back in time to pick up um, my son. And um, it was just insane. Um and I realized once I left that job, how much I was spending on petrol. And now I probably yeah. fill up my tank once, once every two and a half weeks, probably three weeks. So it's, it's a big change. Yeah. It's those little, those little things that you spend money on that you don't even realize that really counts. Money and, um, rationality and logic. I, the, I'm sort of increasingly thinking just do not go hand in hand. I think there's definitely, um, it's a lot to explore around people's relationship with money. For sure. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about Ink House. Um, so, uh, do you want to tell, do the little spiel at the beginning about what Ink House does, and um, then we'll talk about how you started it as well. Definitely. Okay. So, I am an email conversion strategist and copywriter. I write revenue boosting, relationship building emails for business owners and e-commerce brands. So, basically, I'm the person that um, business owners come to when they want to make money through their emails when they know the value of email, when they know that email works and they believe in email, but they just don't know how to start selling through emails. Or they might actually already be selling, but they know that they're not selling enough and they could be doing better. So I go in there and look for ways to boost their conversions and create money-making relationship building sequences for them. Do you think people are returning to email as a marketing tool? Do you think it's um, almost having a bit of a comeback? I think so. I think there was a period in time which people spoke about email being dead, which was not the case back then anyway. Um, I think that came with the advent of social media. I, I can understand why people were having that conversation, but I don't think social media took away from email at all. I think um, emails remained kind of consistently part of people's lives. And if anything, as technology advanced, um, our relationship with email got closer. So we all now have, you know, emails. Most of us have our emails on our phone. Most of, all, most of us have our emails pinging through to our phones all day and all night, actually, unless you have you know, um, a bit of restraint, but yeah, I absolutely have seen more people returning to email now because of COVID and people having to move their businesses online. People are really starting to appreciate the value of email. And I was reading an article yesterday. I cannot remember the exact stats, but there's been a huge boom in the number of e-commerce businesses that have emerged in this period over the last few months and yeah. yeah it just got me really excited because that means there's just so many more e-commerce brands to get in touch with and to to work with and more people to to give you money and uh grow, help you grow your business <laughs> absolutely <laughs> <laughs> um i have for those of you listening who are not part of it yet so i've just recently started my own email mailing list so think productive my company's had a an, an email list for you know, for, for pretty much its entire history for the last sort of 10, 11, 12 years. But me personally, I've never had one before. And I just started it six, seven, eight weeks ago, something like that. And um, it's been a really, it's been a really interesting journey, actually. Um, but I think one of the things that it's really um, started to teach me is just how intimate your uh, communication via email can be. So my thing's called Rev Up for the Week, and it goes out on a Sunday. And like you say, I think a lot of people are picking up those messages, um, you know, in their kitchen on a Sunday evening or, you know, sort of last thing on a Sunday night. They're probably reading it all like early on a Monday morning. And that was the idea for me is like put something in people's inboxes for uh, the sort of start point of the week. And that's like their sort of 
theme for the week ahead or just something to think about for the week ahead. But it it seems to me like if you can get that right, it's it's a it's a very genuine connection. I've kind of started following a few people's email lists myself as well, which I hadn't really been doing much before. But do you find that you can get almost like a more sort of deeper connection with people via email than you can on social media because it's like you're in like your world and their world rather than in Twitter's world or Instagram's world or something like that. Like it just kind of feels different to me. Absolutely. I mean, practically anyway, we have no control over who sees our social media posts, right? So the algorithm controls that, which means the majority of people aren't even seeing your posts. So email is, you know, the best way to um, ensure deliverability. It has kind of the highest deliverability rates. You can guarantee, I mean, pretty much guaranteed that, when you know when you send an email, most people are going to get it, unless obviously some emails bounce and that kind of thing. Um, and then the other thing with that is that you know people mistake email for being a one-to-many marketing tool when it's actually a one-to-one marketing tool. It's a very, like you said, intimate way to communicate with people because for every person that's getting that email they are opening it as an individual and reading it as an individual. So it's almost like a private personal letter that you're writing to one person. So that's one of the biggest email tips I always give is don't write your emails as if you're writing to hundreds or thousands of people. Write it as if you're writing to one person because that's exactly what you're doing. And it is. And and that's how you build the connection and you build the trust. And that's how you, I guess, nurture people from being subscribers and into customers. And the other thing is a lot of people reply, right? So then it does become a a very intimate one-to-one um, experience because people are just sending you back direct questions and you know you're having that kind of one-to-one dialogue with people exactly and that's when you know your emails are really good and that they're working when people hit reply for you to have you know um encouraged someone to actually go out of their way hit reply and reply back to you and talk to you it's, it's a huge accomplishment so yeah that means your emails are doing brilliantly oh thanks that's good to hear um i yeah I, i'm gonna keep up my um uh, policy of replying individually to all of them. And then, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. If I scale it in the way that I want to scale it, I'm already slightly worried that I'm going to spend the whole of Monday just replying to, uh, people's emails, but actually like, it's a really enjoyable part of my week at the moment is you know getting those messages from people and replying. So I'll, I'll keep doing that. So let's talk about um, how you got started then. So how long has Inkhouse been going, first of all? Inkhouse has been going almost two years. So in September uh, 2020, in a few months, um, it'll be two. So still very young. <laughs> and you you had a, a sort of uh, light bulb moment a bit before that where you decided that you were a writer as well. So uh, how, how did that, how did it all get started for you? Yeah. So I, I mean, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I just didn't know that I could actually get paid to be a writer. I didn't know that that was a thing. I was kind of taught in school that you're either, you're either JK Rowling or you're, you know, you're poor as a writer. <laughs> you can't make a living <laughs> from writing. So that was the kind of message that I'd always grown up with. Um, but it was something that I really loved to do and it's what made me happy. And I was actually teaching in Milan, in Italy for, um, for a summer and I got the chance to write for a publication and they paid me at the end. They paid me for my article. And I remember sitting on this uh, Milanese veranda with the host family's dog, the host family that I was staying with. And they were so lovely. 
Um, but they had a dog. I was terrified of dogs, by the way. But this dog, Keem, was lovely. She was a golden retriever. And so she was the only dog that I've not that I'm not scared of or that I haven't been afraid of. <laughs> um, so she was sat next to me. And I remember writing that article and just thinking, wow, wow, I can be a writer if if I want to be a writer. And people will pay me for this. I just need to find a way to make this um, to make this work. So, I mean, years later, um, I tried out a few different things. I went in and out of freelancing. I couldn't find a way to make it work. I couldn't find a way to get out of being paid really terrible rates. And, um, eventually I decided to go and work for um, a charity. So I was running their communications department and my job involved doing a whole lot of copywriting. I was managing their social media. I was producing their video content. I was um, responsible for helping to come up with the campaigns and, you know, managing all the copywriting for the campaigns. And the thing I enjoyed most about that job was the copywriting. And I thought I'd actually stay in that job for a few years. I saw myself there for the long term, but it had me commuting, as I mentioned a bit earlier on. So I was, I was on the motorway for nearly three hours um, every day and I'd get home to my son who would be fast asleep. He was a very um, strong-willed child, even at two <laughs> at the time. And he'd refuse to go to bed unless he'd seen me. So he'd sit up on the sofa and wait and try and stay awake and he couldn't. So every night he'd fall asleep and I'd walk in and he'd be asleep on the couch. And it, it, it was just more and more difficult to deal with every time, every time that happened. And I was just starting to feel really exhausted. I was really unhappy. And I remember complaining about something at work one day and my colleague, who was a friend, um, she said something to me about me always complaining. And I just thought, wow, when did I become that person who was always complaining? Because she was absolutely right. And mm. I just had to have a moment of reflection where I thought, this isn't who I am. I'm known for being happy and bubbly, but my work situation just made me so unhappy. I was also doing a lot of, of overtime, which honestly I wasn't paid for. Um, so I was working a lot of evenings and weekends and it just wasn't working out. So I did try to have a conversation with my manager and I let him know that, um, you know, this isn't something I can keep doing and I need something to change. Um, can we talk about flexible you know, working hours? Can I work from home more? Because it was a job I could absolutely do from home. I was already doing it from home once, one, one day every week. Um, and I so could have done it full-time from yeah. home. Um, but that's not what he wanted. I also asked for a pay rise and um, he agreed to give me a pay rise, but it wasn't as high as I wanted it to be. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, particularly high, even what I was asking for. Um, and yeah, it, it just didn't work out. So I, I decided to resign and I was terrified because I had no savings. I had no backup plan. I just knew that I really wanted to set up my own business. I wanted to focus on copywriting. I felt like something really good could come out of me just focusing on copywriting and that actually having worked in this, um, this 
organization for a year that I'd actually picked up some really great skills. I'd picked up a great, I'd created a great network for myself and that maybe I could do this. I'd also started listening to a podcast called Hot Copy Podcast um, mm. every day on my commute. And it's a podcast by two ladies called Belinda Weaver and um, Kate Toon. They're copywriters and they basically run through how to be a better copywriter, how to set up a copywriting business, all the things that you need, that kind of thing. And by the time I'd finished binging all those episodes, I thought, I think I can do this. So I left that job being terrified, but actually an hour after I left that job, the the CEO sent me a message asking me to, um, asking me if he could hire me as a freelancer. So, <laughs> so that was, um, he was my first client. And by Monday I had... I'd left on the Friday. So by Monday I had another client. And then I think by the end of that week, I had another couple of inquiries. And so were these people that you knew? Yeah, this was, this was the network that I'd created, which was fantastic because I, I had, um, I'd obviously been working with a lot of people in the charity sector and I hadn't particularly seen myself as, as working, um, you know, with charities. Um, and honestly, only because, I mean, I loved working with charities, but, with charities is usually the conversation of, of budget a lot. There's, you know, we don't have the budget for this. We don't have the budget for that. And I was really exhausted by it. I just wanted to work with, with businesses that, you know, didn't, um, weren't so, I guess, um, constrained by, by the budget. Um, and then the other thing was I actually found it really, I guess, emotionally and, and psychologically draining working with charities. It had a huge, um, I guess, psychological effect on me because every day we were just talking and I was writing about, and remember I was, I was reading and writing up case studies for the people that we supported, um, who were living in the most horrendous conditions. So every day was just me writing, reading, hearing about war and death and pain and suffering and poverty. And it was so much. And I actually wrote a blog post not long after about the need for charity professionals to have, um, psychological support and therapy as part of the, um, I guess the package of, of working in the charity sector. Cause there's like the other side to that as well, isn't there? Which is that you, if you work in a charity, you're often surrounded by stories of kindness and human in- ingenuity and resilience. And there's the sort of inspiring part of it, but then yeah, if you're working in, you know, a charity that's about, like you say, conflict or, cancer or whatever then you know it does it does become the fact that you're just surrounded by such negative stuff like all the time you know i remember i used to do some work with one of the cancer charities and in in the culture of that organization there was a very dark sense of humor because i think that's the only way that you can deal with the fact that you you know you have cancer in your email signature and like you know you're using that word all the time and and sort of talking about all those, um, you know, the really bad um, stories the whole time. So, you, you know, they kind of created this whole um, safety blanket around themselves, which was to use this dark humour as the as the sort of cushion, if you like. Yeah, it's the coping mechanism. And I think now that you've said that, I think the issue was it was an international um, food charity. So 
obviously I was dealing with a lot of poverty and hunger, which was just horrific. And then the other thing is, you know, because it was an international charity, we never got to meet the people that we supported and helped. So there were really not many um, cases or instances where we heard about, you know, a family coming out of poverty and, you know, um, happy things. So that was really difficult to deal with. So I never intentionally kind of, um, I never saw myself working with charities long-term, but because that was my network and those were the people that I'd met and I'd just come out of the charity sector, a lot of the people that wanted to work with me were from the charity sector, which was great. Um, again, I love, I love working with charities, but I just noticed that I had to really be careful around it. So all those first few clients were charities. And for the first probably eight or nine months, all my clients were charities until I started started to, um, and intentionally decided to move away from working, um, so much with charities and start focusing on working with, with businesses too. Nice. It's good to have the range, I think as well. Yes. Um, and you started the business. So when you started the business, A, you were quite young and B, you had a toddler. So just wondering in terms of a a stage in life to start a business, do you think that was a, a, a good thing to start young or would it sounded like it was you were terrified when you left the job was it was it quite a daunting prospect it was extremely daunting uh, but it was also really exciting and exhilarating and liberating and no one's ever asked me that question before it's such a good question i must have been 26 when i set up ink house and wow i remember feeling like life is only going to get harder i'm only i'm only going to get I'm only going to have more responsibilities. I'm only going to have more bills to pay. Um, so if I want to start a business, now is the time. This is going to be the best time mm. um, for me to do that. I remember really clearly feeling like that and thinking that and then just going for it. And I never really stopped to think about my age. The only time that I have, if I'm completely honest, is when right at the beginning, I'd have conversations with people. And I guess, again, two years ago, I wasn't um, really, I wasn't as established as I am now. Not that, you know, I'm not Marie Folio or anything, but but I, I wasn't as established and trusted as I am now. And I used to have a lot of silly conversations with people. And I used to think this person is just taking the mick out of me because they can see that I'm young and I'm a woman. And, you know, I'm, I'm visibly Muslim as well. I am from the BME community as well on top of that. And they probably think I'm a lot younger than I am because, and I don't say this in a good way, um, I so want to look my age, but, you know, people meet me and I'm 28 now, but people meet me and think I'm like 19, 20, which is <laughs> highly frustrating. So I often used to think people are just don't take me seriously. Um, but actually, once they started working with me, they took me very seriously. You've even got that on your um, website so, somewhere, haven't you? It says something like, I am older than I look, don't worry. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's, and to be honest, it's taken me some time to kind of get over that. But I feel like now that um, I've been doing this for a couple of years, and now that um, I was, this might sound, this might sound a bit um, I don't know, braggy. I hope it doesn't. But now that kind of my reputation kind of precedes me, like people generally come to me and have heard about me from someone else, or I've been referred mm-hmm. to them from someone else. So we don't even have, you know, weird conversations anymore. Um, I feel much more kind of, um, in control of the situation and, and like I am respected. So yeah. that was the only, I think, struggle for me in terms of, in terms of my age. When it comes to the copywriting itself, do you have, 
a secret source or a particular formula that you follow or like is there is there a thing that you think that you do really well in the way that you use words that makes your work stand out well the first thing i would say is that um people usually think that copywriting is an an art and that it's a creative um form and i guess in some ways it is but really copywriting is a science so it is full of formulas and um systems and, and processes and and ways to do things so yes i definitely follow um all of those that help to make my copywriting successful um, and effective. But I think the main thing is that uh, I'm not afraid to be myself. I'm not afraid to inject my own voice into my copy. Um, like if you join my newsletter, you'll either love it or hate it because it is just, <laughs> it's just me. Um, I, you, you will gauge very quickly whether you want to work with me and whether, you know, we'll gel. And I, so I think that's, that's what I do well. Um, and where where do you find all those formulas from and the kind of scientific side of it? Because I'm I'm really curious about that because I'm probably, I don't know, even though I write business books, I think of it as a creative thing and I think of it as being more artistic than scientific, which is probably completely wrong of me by the sounds of it. <laughs> but um, you know, where, where do you find those, those formulas from in terms of um, email newsletters and, and copywriting kind of science? Uh, books, books and courses. And I've done so many and, you know, there are some people who are so against people um, taking courses and who think that courses are, are, you know, just scams and whatever else. But um, honestly, there are things that you need to learn um, about copywriting in order to do it well. And the reason I say it's a science is because um, this isn't like, I guess, creative writing where you are really kind of expressing yourself copywriting is about the art of persuasion um it's about persuading someone to do what you want them to do and that involves you know sales marketing psychology all sorts of things um and so there are best practices and i think um you can definitely stray from those best practices but you need to know what the rules are in order to break them and yeah I actually have my own online copywriting course for business owners. Um, and I created that because I had a lot of business owners who um, would come to me and they were right at the beginning of the business journey and they didn't have the budget really to hire, not just the copywriters, hire anyone really. So um, I felt, I found that I was turning a lot of people away, which didn't feel great. And so I decided to um, turn my face-to-face -face workshops that I'd been doing into, um, into an online course. So Yes, I believe in online courses. I have taken so many. I am in, um, I mean, I'm always learning. Even now I'm signed up to a couple of courses that I actually implement and go through and, you know, um, create time on my schedule and my calendar weekly to to progress through these courses. And I'm also in, um, in a couple of membership communities with, uh, and a mastermind as well, with copywriters that are just so much more, um, successful than me and who are so much smarter than me. Um, because I, I just, my philosophy in life is to never, ever be the smartest person in the room. I always want <laughs> to be around people. I want to be around people that make me feel really dumb because I just want to learn from them. I want to learn everything that they know. And I'm so lucky to be in a number of communities where that is, where that is the case. And there are people who are 
where I want to be in five years. And, you know, they share their strategies, they share their um, mistakes and their lessons learned. And um, again, they even just sharing their copy, like when they put up their copy to be reviewed by our coaches, first thing I do is check it out and I'm reading through it and I am, I'm going through it and I'm seeing what's, what's good and what's working and what's not. And like you said earlier on about signing up to other people's email address, uh, email newsletters, I have an entire inbox dedicated to, um, signing up to other people's newsletters. <laughs> so just seeing, um, what other people are doing with their email and analyzing that, um, and being really intentional about analyzing that as well and seeing what's you know, which emails made me want to open them, which subject lines made me want to actually open the email and why and what worked, what worked, what didn't work. Um, you know, what are people's newsletters doing? What are they talking about? Um, all that good stuff. So yeah, I get a lot of inspiration from, from other copywriters too. Nice. Um, we'll put a link to your course, um, in the show notes. That'll be at getbeyondbusy.com if people want to check that out. Are there other courses or books that you'd recommend as well? Like things that influenced you early on? Yes. Um, so Joanna Weeb at Copy Hackers um, is just amazing. And it's it's really strange, actually, because she has always been someone that I've learned from. And then just last week, um, she hired me to do some work for her, which was just amazing. Oh, cool. um, but she does oh God, she gives away so much free content. So, um, you don't even have to be a copywriter to, to benefit from it. You can be a business owner and, and benefit from it immensely. So if people um, check out Tuesday tutorials by copy hackers, those are 20 minute, really um, fast lessons that go through a whole range of stuff um, to just really improve your copywriting skills and to essentially boost conversions, um, through your copy. So that's one. Um, Tom Albrighton has written a book as well. Um, Ah, what is the name of that book? Um, <laughs> it's it's completely gone. But check out Tom. Don't worry, we, we can put it in the show notes as well. We'll 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 find it afterwards and put it in the show notes. Thank you. And I think um, yeah, Hot Copy Podcast is a great one. Um, a lot of copywriters listen to it, but it's also really beneficial for um, business owners who just want to improve their copywriting skills. And I think it's one of those things. I mean, you mentioned business owners there, and obviously, if your job is in comms or in copywriting, then it's it's, um, you know, a hundred percent specific, but actually everybody is trying to persuade people in their emails and, you know, even verbal communication, like it comes from the way you think about written communication too. Right. So kind of feels like one of those skills that, um, perhaps a lot of people, they practice it every day, but they never really learn or develop the skill consciously. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the difficult things about being a copywriter when people, um, come to you who I guess don't, don't really value the skill of copywriting anyway, in the first place, that's probably the first issue. Um, you mm. often find yourself having conversations with people where they say, okay, well, how much is this? And then you tell them and they're like, oh, well, I can go and do it myself. I'll go and do it. So because, um, writing is a thing that everybody can physically do. Um, it becomes a case of people feeling like, well, I don't need cop. I don't need a copywriter. I can, I can just do it. And I would say, um, of course, if you're in the early stages of your business, you you kind of have to write your own copy. So it's a very good idea to invest a little in learning how to do that properly. But when you can hire a copywriter, I would say go for it. If I could hire a copywriter, um, if I had the budget to hire a copywriter, <laughs> I would. I absolutely would. And I know that all the 
the top copywriters in my industry, um, a lot of them don't write their own copy. They hire other copywriters to write their copy. And that's often because firstly, it's a time thing. Um, so it's just outsourcing those things that you don't have time to do anymore. But also it's about you being too close to your business and needing someone else who isn't as close to step in and to tell you what is great about it and what will um, encourage other people to invest in you and to trust you and to like you because we kind of come from a place when it's our own business we feel like we know everything there is to know and it's true I mean there's there is no one who will know more about your business than you but when it comes to copywriting the kind of questions that I have to ask when I am first talking to a client is not just you know who is your target audience or who is your ideal customer I'm asking what does your customer most want from life? What is their greatest desire? What are their greatest fears? What keeps them up at night? How do they start their day? How do they wind down at night? What is stopping them from buying from you? What what does the little voice in their head tell them when it's time to hit that buy button? What can you do to overcome those objections? All that kind of stuff. So we go so far into that. And sometimes it's it's hard to to be able to do that alone without someone guiding you through that process. Yeah. I mean, a bit more of an objective um, methodology around it. Exactly. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about work-life balance. So on your website, you are very clear that you keep good boundaries around your time. And like you're talking about before, you want to make sure that you're there to put your son to bed and to have that family life outside of work. And then during your working hours, it's like you are just focused on getting stuff done. So it really feels like there's a focus to what you do. Uh, what's your what's your sort of general philosophy around work-life balance um, and just drawing those boundaries? Well, I created this business because I wanted to build a lifestyle that worked for me and my son because my lifestyle wasn't working for us before that. So that's one of the main things I always try to keep guess at the front of my mind. And it's been difficult because obviously when you're in the early stages of business building, it really is a case of this is probably, this is the case for every business owner. If you allow it to, the work will never stop because there is just no end to the amount of things that you could be doing. There's always something else you could have done. So it's been really hard for me to kind of create that boundary. And there have definitely been times when I haven't been able to maintain that boundary, but certain rules that I've always had in place are things like, um, firstly, clients don't have my, I've never had my personal number. There was a time when I did give out a business number, but I removed that actually from my website and everywhere. So now um, clients can only talk to me and even leads and inquiries and that kind of thing. Um, they have to book a call through um, my scheduling software, Calendly, in order to speak to me. So that is that is very scheduled and it, it you know, nicely slots into my working hours instead of me kind of being called at all days and sometimes, you know, um, at all hours of the day and night. So that was, um, that was a lesson that I kind of had to learn. But one of the other things is I don't do, I don't contact clients 
in the evenings or weekends. So if I get an email from a client in the evening, um, I might even, you know, I might actually reply, but I'll schedule it for the, for the next day, for the next morning during working hours so that they only get it when I'm working. Because one of the best things that one of my mentors told me when I first started out was that you have to train your clients and you have to really educate them in how you do business. So if I don't want my clients to contact me, you know, in the evenings and on weekends, then I should not reply to them when they do contact me. I also make it really clear. Um, I have eight, my opening hours in my email signature. So people know that I'm not available on evenings and weekends. I, I explain that to clients when in my onboarding process, that I'm not available in the evenings and weekends and that these are my working hours. I, I, I would say that, you know, I do work on weekends, but I try not to make it client work because it always kind of, kind of feels like clients have hijacked my weekend if I end up doing client work on the weekend. So I generally have a rule where if I'm going to do work, I'm going to be really intentional about it. So I'm going to enjoy the day with my son and have and, and spend some time with him. And then usually when he goes to sleep, I will get my laptop out and I will do work. And I used to feel really guilty about that because I used to think that I was running my business the wrong way. And it, it was, it wasn't until I joined my mastermind and my coach kind of walked us through this idea that it's completely fine to work weekends. If that's what you want to do, just be intentional about it. That changed everything for me. So I probably schedule about three hours of work on a Saturday, um, a few on a Sunday as well. And it doesn't feel like my entire weekend is me doing work because it's just really intentional. And I've laid out those hours beforehand and I know when I'm going to do work. And I guess if it's the work that you have planned for you and not client work, then if you get to the weekend and you're really tired or something, then you can just change that and just come back to that on Monday, right? Exactly. And business building work is my favorite type of work. So it doesn't feel like work. It feels really fun. And I feel like I'm, I'm excited to have some time to just spend on, you know, better in my business. Nice. Um, tell me about productivity. What are the things that, um, particularly, fuel you in your work and, and help keep you on track and keep you focused? Well, one of the things is the daily deadline that I have, which is uh, at 4.30, I have to get up and go and pick my son up from nursery. So that's a really good thing that keeps me on track. It helps me stay focused because I know I've only got a, you know, a limited amount of time to get stuff done. I also use theme days. That was again taught to me by Joanna Weeb from Copy Hackers. She, um, teaches you to use theme days and to, to really, to basically only do one type of thing a day. So Mondays, for example, are learning Mondays for me. So I focus on getting up to date and getting up to speed with all my courses and membership community resources and that kind of thing. And that's been amazing because it's meant that I actually implement what I'm learning and I have time to implement what I'm learning. And Tuesdays and Wednesdays are client days. So I know Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I'm focused on doing that. Thursdays are my marketing and business development days, which is why we're recording this podcast on a Thursday. I picked a Thursday to <laughs> stay um, aligned with my theme days. Friday is my content day, content Friday. So I focus 
on creating my own content for my own business. And I've recently started doing email teardowns of big brands. So that's been really fun. And I do, I do those on a Friday. What's an, what's an email teardown? Oh, an email teardown is a, a review, basically like an audit of someone's entire email funnel. So the last one I did was Kylie Jenner's company and Kylie Cosmetics. So I went through her, I went through the customer experience from her website to emails and did a whole entire audit of her emails. And what I found was not great, by the way. So if you want to check that out, (laughs) you want to check that out, go check it out on my website. Uh, But it was really fun. And oh my gosh, people loved it. I think small business owners just loved seeing and hearing that even the biggest businesses get it wrong sometimes. Mm. And I'm about to release another one actually where I um, tear down Vans' email funnels. So that was, um, that was really cool as well. So I spent my Fridays doing that and just, oh, I also write my email content on a Friday as well. So I like to batch. I write all my email newsletters for the month in one day and schedule them, schedule them all as well. So then I don't have to worry about it again until my next um, dedicated content Friday for newsletters comes around. That's a really great way to keep productive and to stay on top of sending my emails out regularly and consistently because it can get hard for me otherwise. I also know, by the way, other copywriters that do that differently. Um, Someone that I know and love, she schedules, she writes her emails literally half an hour before she sends them out. Yeah. So there are really different, obviously, ways to do that, but that's just how I stay productive. Yeah. My my approach with my weekly email at the moment is I I tend to start thinking about it on the Monday and I'll try and write it kind of Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, but you know, I'm talking to you on a Thursday and I hadn't written anything yet for this Sunday's one. Right. So I it only once did it actually get to me writing it on Friday night and Saturday morning. Um, and that was, I did quite a long, um, and quite detailed thing around black lives matter. And I really wanted to work hard on it and make it good. Yeah. So I ended up putting quite a lot more time into that than I do on the, the more regular weekly ones. But yeah, I don't have like a fixed thing for it, but I suppose the, the other question about the theme days because it sounds like a really great setup and a really nice rhythm. I love the fact that your Mondays are dedicated to learning. And it's like, you know, you start the week with that sense of possibility. I think that's really cool. But then what happens if Monday morning, 9.15am or something, you get a an email from a really valued regular client and, and they're saying, hey, we want to we want to engage you for four days and our deadline is this Friday. Like, do you have weeks where it all just goes completely out the, out the window? And do you have ways of trying to protect that, that rhythm? Cause it sounds like a good rhythm. That is such a good question. And the answer to that is that I have, I decided a long time ago not to take on urgent work. Oh, okay. At, yeah. At the beginning of when I first set up Ink House, what I did was charge an extra kind of 25% for crazy deadlines, mm. especially those that had me working evenings and weekends. And then actually I just kind of got to the point where I thought, I, I really don't like this. Like it makes me dislike my job because the stress and the anxiety that comes with having to work on a really tight deadline that I didn't see coming when everything else is quite meticulously laid out in my week um, is it's not fun. And I'm also really aware that when I feel like that, I bring it home with me. So if I'm anxious and stressed about work, then I'll bring it home and 
you know, my son gets the brunt of that and that's not what I want. So I stopped taking on urgent work about a, a year ago and I've told all my clients I don't do urgent work. And even when I'm on calls with people um, who are just, who are leads and we're just having, you know, our first conversations, I tell them I'm not the type of copywriter that you want to hire when you need work doing tomorrow or the end of this week. Yeah. Right. My, my waiting list is anything between three to six weeks long. So people who get on the phone to me know that I may not even start their project for another month. And I'm just really upfront about that. And if it doesn't work for some people, which it doesn't, that's completely fine. It just means that, you know, we can't work together, but most people are fine with it. Mm. And that's a really, sounds like you're in a really strong position in terms of having that pipeline to be able to then turn down those things. You know, if, yes. you're, if you're desperate to keep every single client or desperate for the next one, it's a slightly different. Scenario, Absolutely. Uh, but I do have to say that it, it did take me um, a long time to get to that point, but there have been times when I've not been in the greatest position and I have still said no to kind of work that didn't work that didn't work for me, um, or work that wasn't paying well. Um, there was one January where I had zero inquiries and I just, rem- oh, sorry, zero good inquiries. I had a couple of people call me about some, about work and they wanted to pay me peanuts. And I remember thinking, I, some people would tell me to say yes to this because I really have no work, mm. but I think I've made those difficult decisions as well in those times when I really did need the work to also say no. And to also trust in my, the work that I have been doing because I market myself like crazy. I really work hard on that. And so I kind of have to trust that it will come back to me and that, um, you know, I, I will continue to get inquiries, even if I do have dry spells sometimes, but you're right. It's now at the point where I feel quite confident in the kind of stream of inquiries that come through. It really reminds me of the early days of Think Productive. We had basically no work coming in. It was very, very early stages. And we had an inquiry from a big tobacco company and they wanted to do, they wanted to do loads of work with us and, Obviously, the dilemma then is, do I want to spend my time making tobacco companies more productive? Right? <laughs> and, and it was this real moral dilemma too, because it was it also involved um, the first person that we brought on um, to be a freelance trainer. And so he had no work. And me saying no to this inquiry also meant that I was saying no to him getting paid as well as my own, my own moral oh, position. And I ended up saying no to it. And it felt it felt like one of the hardest decisions because, you know, your real loyalty is to is to try and build your business. But I still, I look back on it now, and I'm I'm still pretty convinced I made the right call. It's a hard one, isn't it? It's really tough. Yeah, and I think it's also it's a, it feels like a very different. Um, it feels like a different moral dilemma when it's your business versus if you're working in a company and you want to take on a new client, right? Yes. So yes, you have the sort of the kudos aspect of, um, you know, uh, of that client thing. If, if you're within a business, maybe you have some kind of, um, target to hit around sales and stuff, but when it's your own bread and butter and it's your, your identity is so wrapped up in that business succeeding that it feels like you want to just do everything that you possibly can to, to, to be loyal to your own business and make it work. But there are, there are certain lines for me that I don't want to cross for sure. Agreed. Um, tell me about the, the future as you see it, because it feels like you, 
uh, like you've made very clear, very boundaried decisions around setting up your work, your your work around your life rather than the, the other way around and creating the right kind of lifestyle for you. And it sounds like at different points, you've had the ability to to look at things like taking on urgent work as being things, even though I'm not doing that right now, I'm going to set that up as my next boundary or the next thing that I'm going to change or the next part of the setup. So I'm just wondering, do you have like a long-term vision for how you want the business to look and how do you think about how you define success and happiness in your work? Right now, I'm focused on re actually throwing my current website in the bin and starting again (laughs) and doing a whole rebrand. Oh, wow. Yeah. The reason for that is because I... Firstly, my copywriting skills have improved immensely from when I first wrote that website two years ago. So I want it to kind of better reflect me and who I am today. But also because I want to set up my website as almost like an employee. So I want it to do the work for me. I want it to do the persuading for me. I want to get clients solely off my website. Clients who have never spoken to me before, but who go on my website and are convinced by my copy on my website that they want to hire me. And I know that's entirely possible because firstly, I know the power of great copy, um, but also because I see it work for other people. So that is my next plan. And I say that because that feeds into how my life will, or how I imagine my life will then look. Because one of the biggest things that I really want to do that has been kind of... I guess been it's been on my mind for a little bit. I didn't even know I wanted this until... I heard another copywriter called Helen Dibble talk about the fact that she does it. I want a four, a four day week. I only want to work mm. Monday to Thursday. And I want to give myself Fridays off. Now at the minute, that is not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen right now. But I, I love the fact that I'm thinking about it and that it's there. And that can kind of, I know that's what I want now. So I can start working towards it. And I think my website is a big part of that. As for happiness and success, I would love to say that I, you know, money doesn't mean anything to me, but it does. <laughs> I I have financial goals that I want to hit and I want to hit consistently. I will be happy when my business is making a certain amount. Um, as in, sorry, I will see that as that that is my kind of one of my definitions of success is hitting my financial goals for my business. I'll be really happy about that. And is that a success for you or success for the business? Do you know what I mean? Because I think sometimes like there's, there's an amount of money that we all need to live, but there's also an amount of money that we think reflects our sort of worth in terms of our work and the business. And sometimes those are slightly different things. You're so right. And I think it is a really slippery slope, but for me, it's, it's not about business because I've never, I've never just made money just for the sake of making money. I make money and want to make money for the things that it gives me in my life, for the safety and security that it gives me and my son, for the things that it allows me to do from traveling to, um, I guess even what we were talking about before, where, you know, we have those sense of values and morals. I feel like that is, that's a luxury. Like some people don't have the luxury to be able to stand by their values and stand by their morals. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and all that stuff. So I, I see, you know, financial success as, as a business thing, but primarily for me, it's a very personal thing that is connected to my life and what I can build for myself and my son because I've been in a place where I didn't have very much money and I don't ever want to go back there again so I had to Mm. um I had it's been 
it's, it's been a process, but I've really had to work through this idea of um, it's okay to like money. <laughs> it's okay for me to like money. Um, but uh, most importantly, I want my business to give me, you know, what I set out for it to do. So if it is taking up all my time, if it has me working evenings and weekends, um, if it's the only thing I can think about, which honestly, sometimes it does. And sometimes it is, I'm not quite there yet. Um, but I mean, it's, it's not serving its purpose. I want to build a business where I can go away and, um, you know, it can survive without me firstly, and I don't have to worry about it crumbling because I'm not there 24 seven. And also a business that allows me to live the life that I want to live and, and, 100% be the mum that I want to be. That's a good answer. Um, one question I forgot to ask you earlier, which maybe we'll just use this as the the finishing up question. I, I'm thinking a lot at the moment about how I think through COVID, a lot of people are obviously sort of questioning whether what they're doing for work is the right thing or they're having to pivot or they're having to redesign things. I'm just wondering if now that you've gone through this transition from being employee to being business owner, um, is there anything that you look back on and you think, ah, oh, I miss that from my days of being an employee? Like, is, is, is there a part of being a business owner that you didn't expect or, uh, you know, perhaps um, didn't realize that you'd have to take on or anything like that? I think the biggest thing for me and just the type of personality that I have is I've always been a kind of teacher's pet. So I like being a teacher's favorite and I like being the manager's favorite and, you know, getting praise and being told that I'm doing a good job. And suddenly when you're, when you're self-employed, there's no one to tell you that you're doing a good job or that you're doing it right. Mm. There's, you're just, you're just alone. <laughs> you're alone um, for as long as you allow yourself to be, because once you kind of hit that point where you think, oh, I'm really isolated. I am making all these decisions by myself. I could really do with advice or someone to just bounce ideas off. Um, And then you start searching for communities and you start searching for um, people who are in a similar role to you or just other other freelancers or other business owners who understand what it's like to, to be a business owner. So that's one of the things that I, I never saw coming. I didn't realize how much I wanted to be told that I was doing a good job until I didn't have it anymore. It sounds like you've um, done a really good job in terms of connecting with the right communities there as well. I, I have. And that's one of the, one of the first things I did actually, I I'd set up my business in September and by November, I knew that this business would not survive if I carried on the way I was. I think I was charging 10 pounds an hour. And I, I just thought this is, I can't live on this. How does anyone do this? There must be something that I don't know. So I went out and searched for a community and, and someone to help me and a mentor. Um, and by November I had that mentor and within I mean, I actually got on a call with her. I got on a half hour call with her. And I remember my family member being shocked at how much I paid for that half hour coaching call with her. Mm. But me knowing even then when I didn't have very much money at all to spend on this coaching call, I understood then that it was an investment. And I was right because within two weeks, I had made that investment back 10 times over. And within within four months, I'd quadrupled my rates with, you know, being in this community and with this coach. And then a month later I had the best, what was back then the best financial month of my life, simply because I had found help and I'd found support and I'd found a community. So that's one of the biggest things that I, um, advocate and I am not shy to invest in courses and communities because I've seen that the return on investment is, 
is phenomenal. That's really inspiring. And also just a really practical thing that, that, you know, most of us can do in whatever industry we're in is, is go and find those mentors and find those people to help with the things that we're stuck on. Um, we're about out of time. So it'd be really good to, uh, push people in your direction if they're interested in copywriting. Um, and also just tell us about the course that people can find as well. So just, yeah. How do people find you? Thank you. So my website is inkhouse.org.uk and you can find me across social media at Inkhouse Writing. And if you go on my website, you'll find the links to my newsletter as well. That's where most people like to hear from me. And as for my course, it is going to be available from I think the 3rd of August. So I'm not sure when this is going out, but if people follow me on social media or sign up to my newsletter, they'll get updates when it's open. Cool. This will be going out around that time as well. So oh, probably perfect. by the time you hear this, yeah, you should be able to to get that. And by the way, I think your current site's really good. <laughs> so, Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> maybe there isn't such a bigger job as you think. To maybe I will, I'm a perfectionist, so I have that issue anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, hopefully you like the next one better. Nice one. Well, it's been lovely having you on Beyond Busy um, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day in rainy Manchester uh, and I'm signing off from rainy Brighton thank you thanks for having me so thanks again to Iman for being on the show thanks also to my producer Mark Stedman and for Emily's help with putting all of this together Um, so I'm going to just talk to you about my new product which I'd love you to be invested in thinking about uh giving some thought to so we're we're launching a new online live program it's called six weeks to ninja it's going to have very limited places there's only only going to be about 30 places on this um partly because it's the first one i've done and partly because i like to keep it small i like to make sure that there's enough time to really kind of get around everybody and uh you know really get to know what your hangups are around productivity and how I can make that better, basically. So uh, it's deliberately small. The idea is over six weeks on a Thursday evening, we are going to be taking you through all of the main chapters of my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And more importantly, giving you homework, giving you some cajoling and coaching and really helping you to implement all the stuff that's in my book that will ultimately lead to really great productivity habits. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this, stress-free working. So if that sounds good, uh, then go to grahamalcott.com. You'll see a link on the homepage there to Six Weeks to Ninja. And it's basically uh, first come, first serve. We're going to put this, uh, first of all, on my mailing list. And if you're not signed up to my mailing list, please do. There's a link on my homepage there at grahamalcott.com. And yeah, then when they're gone, they're gone, but there's going to be 30 places or so. And uh, I'd love you to get involved with Six Weeks to Ninja as we launch this into the autumn. So I'm really excited to share that with you. Really excited to have a whole bunch of you as part of that and looking forward to it. It's uh, the first time I've done this online. So I've been doing um, some one day masterclasses over the last couple of years. And again, I try and keep the, uh, the, the sort of audience numbers pretty limited for that too, for the same kind of reason. Um, but it's the first time that I personally have moved to doing sort of more complete online programs. So it's uh, it's a big step. I'm excited about it. And um, really my interest in doing this, because obviously Think Productive, my business is uh, working with companies all over the world and it doesn't tend to be me 
doing those workshops. We have a whole team of really brilliant ninjas who do that all the time. Um, and for me, it's a really nice way to just kind of keep my toe in with what is happening in productivity and how people think about stuff. And just for me to sort of help get my head into uh, the psychology of the people that we work with and our audience. So that's kind of my interest with um, doing the the live masterclasses in London. And I thought, whilst that's not really an option, I may as well investigate doing something a bit more, uh, you know, regular uh, online. So here we are, we're going to do it via Zoom. It's going to be um, a six-week programme. There'll be a WhatsApp group to support people through that time as well. And yeah, just really looking forward to it. So go to graymalcott.com and you'll find out more. And our sponsors for the show are Think Productive. So if you're in a company and you want to bring us in to do workshops for your team, then we just have a whole army of productivity ninjas around the world. So thinkproductive.com, you'll find out more details about that. Uh, find out where your nearest offices are, nearest ninjas are, and all that good stuff. So thinkproductive.com for that. And the only other website I just wanted to mention is our show notes and episode catalogue website, which is getbeyondbusy.com. Um, so show notes for this episode will be there. All the links to the previous episodes. And uh, we have just gone weekly. This is actually our first um, weekly podcast, if you like, because we had one last week with Steph and then this one. So uh, we're now officially a weekly podcast. So that means if you're not subscribed, um, I'd love you to just hit your subscribe button on whatever your podcast app is. And please review and like and all that stuff. It really helps us. And uh, we just have some really great, great, great guests coming up in the next few weeks. So looking forward to sharing those with you. Until next week, that's it for me. Take care. Bye for now.